0: In this session, I interview Adrian Vorkamp, who's the Director of Learning Deployment for the Americas at Johnson Controls. Adrian's going to share his insights of moving from being in sales for part of his career now to being on the buying side. And what he says may surprise you. Sit back, relax and enjoy the show. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Sales Edge podcast, where we teach you everything. Hunting, keeping, growing business in the business-to-business space. And I'm honored today to have another extraordinary guest. And his name is Adrian Vorkamp. A little bit about Adrian. He is the director of learning and deployment at Johnson Controls, which, if you've heard of Johnson Controls, is one of the bigger companies anywhere in the world. And you know, Adrian's had an awesome journey. And I wanted to bring him to you today for his insight about the sales process and his journey and what he's discovered. Now I met Adrian, gosh, I think it was about eight years ago after I had done a webinar and somebody on his team had contacted me about a pro- some project work. And as project, as those contacts come in, you know, you, you deal with them and especially when you're super busy and I didn't hear anything back. And then I got a call a few months later from Adrian who said, we have a project. We need to get some uh, prospecting scripts written for our new salespeople that were out in the field. I said, no problem. And little did I know that that was going to start a long-term relationship that has led into many awesome projects. Maybe we'll get into that today. And more importantly is, you know, I had the opportunity to meet Adrian, and, and here's what I'll say about him personally. He is probably one of the most well-read sales minds that you'll ever be exposed to in terms of reading the books finding and seeking the very best insight-based teachers in the world. He's had a chance to work with all of them. And, you know, I would rather sit with Adrian in a room and discuss sales strategy and sales process and where we see it going. I'd rather do that than, than be on the golf course. That's how entertaining and insightful and informative my conversations are with this guy. So enough of me talking. Let me get over to Adrian. Adrian, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Gene. I appreciate you having me. It's a it's a big introduction, and uh, not one I'm entirely sure I'll be able to live up to. But but I'm gonna try my best.
0: Here's something that's super fascinating. You spent, I'll have you walk through this. Almost the first half of your career, you were yeah. in sales. You you yep. were doing the job. You transitioned to teaching, and then exploring this. You know, if you think back to seven, six, seven years ago when things went to online learning and mm-hmm. learning management system. Them, I mean, you've been through all of those and I'll, I do want to talk to you about the future of that, but walk us through but, your, your career.
1: Yeah, I would say, you know, right now my title is, is definitely more of a HR kind of L and D type of title, but I, I, I'll start out meetings all the time saying I'm not an L and D guy. I'm really just kind of a sales guy. And, um, I started out, uh, my career as a, as an, as an account rep for a, for a vending machine company of all things. Um, and then, uh, transitioned into a couple of different management roles. And then the sales manager role for, um, what was then ADT at the time. Um, and later got acquired by uh, Tyco and Johnson controls. And, um, Sales leader for about four years through some pretty rough times in 2008, 2009, 2010, and okay. then transitioned into the training space. And one of the things that I've that I've noticed is that all of the things that we've built um, built our equity on, built our careers on, in terms of what are the fundamental laws of selling in a business to business market. Um, my career has gone through an interesting transition, and I'm now at the point where. I'm the one not teaching, um, sales content, but I'm the one purchasing sales content. And as I've been on that buying side of the relationship, and not just sales content, but a whole bunch of different, um, uh, learning systems and intellectual property. I've found that the way that I behave as a buyer and what I tolerate from my sellers is almost, almost exactly the opposite of what I've been training sellers to do for, for years now, and I started noticing this a few years ago, and so what I started doing was paying attention to how do other people in our organization purchase, and what sort of interactions do they tolerate from their, uh, from their sellers, and what I've found more and more and more is that um, the kinds of things that we've been teaching sellers to do for, um, I'd say, really since the mid-80s, and, and, you know, with the consultative selling approach, I'm finding that buyers have less and less um, agreement or willingness to kind of participate and come along in that. I think fundamentally the buyers have changed significantly and the level at which the relationship starts between buyer and seller is fundamentally different today than it was, let's say five years ago, seven years ago. And I think it's a, and I think it's a pretty significant shift. Um, and my current spot, of being in a, in a purchasing relationship as opposed to what I've usually done, which has either been in a selling relationship or teaching other sellers, has really kind of brought that to the forefront.
0: Okay, so let's recalibrate for the listener. So pretty much a life, you've been in sales most of your life. Mm-hmm. And if you were in the vending machine business, you you <laughs> had to knock on some doors and prospect and be proactive. You move into sales management role, then you move yep. into being the teacher of sales. Mm-hmm. And you, you've grown your career. You've been promoted multiple times. Now you're a buyer. And what you said to me the other day when we were just talking, you said, you know, everything we've been teaching, Gene, about the consultative sale, ask questions, understand pains or understand gaps. And you said, I don't have time for that anymore. Right. Tell the listeners what you told me. Like, you're not buying the way that we've been yeah. teaching people to sell. This is yeah. breakthrough stuff.
1: Yeah. So essentially, if, I mean, if you go to any sales training today, what you're going to hear is don't talk about product too soon. Don't talk about price too soon and get to understand the customer and get to know what they need and get to know about their business. (laughs) And what, what, what I'm finding today is that first of all, Um, most folks do not wake up in the morning and decide they want to talk to a salesperson. Now, they may wake up in the morning and decide, I want to purchase a commodity or purchase a service or purchase a product, but they don't usually wake up and say, I want to talk to a salesperson. So what happens then is that the buyer goes on a research journey. Now, for if you if you work for a small firm, that means that the buyer, who's also the person who's signing the paper, is the one that's going out and looking at Google and looking for peer reviews and talking to friends and colleagues. Um, but if you work for a large enterprise company, that means that you've got a whole staff of folks that is going out and is kind of winnowing down that market. You know, maybe there's a there's a network or there's a world out there of ten different companies that could potentially provide you the service or product that you're looking for. And you're going to rely on your team or on your research um, to get down to two. And then at that point, you've done the work to now minimize the amount of salespeople that you have to do and or that you have to you have to speak to. And so now you're you're sitting there and you're saying, okay, I've learned about the market. I've learned about the product and service. I've learned which companies can do the things that I want. What I wanna know now is um, what are some of their successful use cases? What are some of their, um, their best uh, deployments? Who are some uh, businesses that, uh, or customers of theirs that I can uh, reach out and talk to and see how they deployed this? And then, and then lastly, um, what's it cost? Right. Am I am I looking at, you know, um, one very high priced option and one very low price option? Because one of the things that that companies have gotten really good at is kind of obfuscating this, the cost and uh, making it really difficult for a buyer um, to find online what that cost structure might be. Right. And so as I've started talking to folks as they've been selling their products and services, the, as I look at the purchasing decisions that I've made and that I've seen others make in my company, um, here's, here's the epiphany that I had. The sales reps that talked about the product the soonest, the sales reps that asked the fewest questions, and the sales reps that talked about price the soonest were usually the ones that won the contract. And that doesn't sound, if you, if you were speaking to somebody who's not in the sales world, you would say, oh, that, that, that makes perfect sense. But if you're talking to somebody in the sales world who kind of goes, who lives in this space all the time, those are like the three biggest things that you're not supposed to do. Um, so it's just been, it's been really interesting as I've kind of watched the market change and watched to see how that buying selling dynamic has changed pretty dramatically.
0: Okay. So what you're saying is you're, you're going to get the research done first. You're going to narrow it down based on a few categories that we're going to discuss. And I'm just yep. reading something the other day that said you're as sellers as selling organizations, Right. Yep. Our number one competitor is our own customer and their desire to do research on their own. And you're backing that up. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: I think, uh, I, I, forgive me for not knowing the source, it might have been the Sales Optimization Institute, but uh, somebody said that by the time a buyer engages a seller, they're already 70% of the way through their decision-making process. So in other words, they're not talking to a seller to determine whether or not that product or service is the right fit. They're talking to a seller to determine, do they have the budget? Are they going to be able to implement this? They've essentially already chosen your product. Or if it's not, if they haven't chosen it, it's between you and somebody else who's very close. Um, and I think that, was, that data really confirms exactly what we're saying.
0: And that's, that's what you were just saying. You're doing mm-hmm. the research first. And you, one of the other things you said in our other conversation, Adrian, like there were three categories that you say, if you don't fit these three categories, yeah. then yeah. there's no hope for you.
1: Yeah, so I think I think you know in the old days, you know, salesmanship and the ability to build a relationship and network were very important because um, the the customer wasn't didn't have the, the the level to do research and didn't have the, the the ability to network and reach out to other folks, and so you you might be able to have a product that maybe wasn't a good fit, but because of your relationship, you could you could kind of maneuver that into the right fit. I think today more than ever, if I'm a salesperson. Um, I think I need to work at a company that does one of these three things really well. Either A, I need to be the best. right? If you think about any particular product category, there are you know, upper right quadrant um, products that are out there. And I need to either work for a company who's the best, number one. If you're not the best, then you need to be the most unique you need to have that widget or that feature or that function that nobody else has and is tailor built to a very specific use case. And if you're not the best, and if you're not the most unique, then the last thing that you, can, that you can be is the cheapest. Now, if you're not one of those three things and you find yourself in a sales position working for a company that is neither the best, the most unique, or the cheapest, you're going to have a really hard time because chances are the buyers have already winnowed you out. And you know, I, it, this is something that you and I have always talked about, and it's part of part of how you build your um, your sales methodologies. But it, being different is more important than being better. Everybody's better, right? Every single person that you talk to is better. Nobody's going to walk into a st- uh, and start off a sales meeting by saying, "Yeah, I'm about as good as everybody else." Um, but what's important is that you're different, and it's one of those three differences: either price, uniqueness, or um, or you know product superiority uh that's going to make the difference and if you're not one of those three you're going to have a really really tough
0: time so you would say you would consider at least as an option what what probably would be called minimum viable product so that kind of hits your kind of sets the the bottom of the threshold of pricing is that kind of how you think yeah yeah
1: yeah i think i think as i'm evaluating a purchasing decision um whether that's you know a sales methodology or whether that's a learning management system or anything else, I'm looking at it from what are my bare bones requirements, right? And then I want to look at and evaluate the vendors based on those requirements, and then who has the most, for lack of a better term, bells and whistles that I think I can get within that, uh, within that price frame. And if there's any if there's anything that one company does that the others don't do, I really want to hone in on that because. I want to understand, number one, am, am I you know, getting sold vaporware by a couple of other vendors who they might be able to do this in the next revision, but right now it's not, it's not happening versus somebody who can do it today? And I'd say that's something that's really important. If you're a seller today um, and you need to know very, very concretely what somebody is getting with your product that they aren't getting with your competitor's product. Um, and sellers, I mean, that needs to be top of mind for folks. Um, and the less squishy it is, the better. And what I mean by that is if it's, oh, our service is great, or I'm your dedicated account manager or anything else, that's, that's kind of squishy stuff. If there's a specific feature or function that you can point to and says, you know, if you sign with us, you get this, you don't get this today with, um, with our competitors. That's the kind of thing that really, um,
0: really makes things happen hey walk us through the experience you told me about you were on the buying team for johnson mm-hmm. controls of a very let's call it an enterprise product yeah we don't have to name any names or even say the product yeah this is where this conversation stemmed and you said you know we had one group come in and do this we had another mm-hmm. group come in and do that We walk us through that experience and yeah it, like extrapolate it
1: yeah so it was, it was interesting so we had we had uh We had two, it was uh, one day and then followed by the next day, we had two vendors come in and pitch us on um, a software as a service type application. And one vendor did a great job following um, just kind of all of the rules and guidelines that you're supposed to do. It was very consultative in the approach, was very professional. Um, And if I was evaluating the sales call, I would absolutely have given it to the first vendor. So if I, as a sales training professional was looking at all the things um, and all the behaviors that I would teach a salesperson to engage in, um, I would have evaluated the first company as the winner. Um, the, I, the irony though, is that the second company um, did again, all the things that uh, that we say not to do. They demoed the product very early on uh, the presentation. They focused on what were their unique differences and they weren't afraid to get into the uh, pricing uh, model when, uh, when, we, when we started going that way. And um, ironically, um, their product, at least to me, um, I got to spend more time looking at their product and more time se- thinking how that product might apply in my space. And as a result, I'm more likely to purchase the second Um, from from the second supplier than from the first supplier. And it wasn't because of the superiority of the sales call. It was because I got to see more of the product and I got to understand more how that product would work um, in my market. And again, it wasn't because the sales rep was customizing it to my market. It's because I had enough knowledge going into the sales call. I shouldn't say I, the organization had enough knowledge because of all the research that we had done to understand what parts of their product set were going to fit well within our organization. And so I didn't require the sales rep to ask a bunch of questions about what our strategic goals were and everything else so that they could tailor that presentation. All I had to do was watch the presentation and look at the product. And then I was able to connect the dots. And sorry, my team was able to connect the dots.
0: Adrian, now this is a a big deal, right? That you're talking about. How many significant influencers are part of that decision making process on your side?
1: Easily um, six plus. Um, and I'd say that's that's the case for almost every purchasing decision. Now again, I work for a large enterprise company and so we have stakeholders that that run the gamut. We have, you know, IT and sales leadership and human resources and um, you know multiple domains of sales leadership. Um, But even within our organization, within just the learning and development team, we have folks that are focused on technology and we have folks that are focused on uh, uh, design, uh, not intellectual design, I'm struggling with the words here, instructional design. Um, And so for those reasons, there's, there's a whole bunch of stakeholders and this idea of getting to a decision maker, we do have a decision maker in terms of, we have somebody that signs a piece of paper at Johnson Controls, but that person um, and most of the folks at that level in the organization very rarely make a decision solo. They will typically rely on their team members to advise and advocate for a specific function. And then we are providing that decision maker with um, what our recommendation is.
0: Now, that would be consensus, right? Yep, absolutely. So, so, but, but in the, something like this, it, it has to fit, let's just call it the HR box, right? HR has specific outcomes and KPIs they're responsible for. Yep. Instructional design has specific outcomes and KPIs. Sales team has obvious KPIs and outcomes. Mm-hmm. Your financial influencer and financial decision maker have specific KPI-based outcomes. While they're all invested in the decision, they're also invested in making sure that they're, it supports their organization. Is that, Am I saying that yeah. right?
1: Yeah, and here's, here's the kicker, Gene. This is the difference. You're not even talking to your customer unless you meet those qualifications today most well and maybe i'm speaking just for for an enterprise customer but most customers again most people do not wake up the day and say i want to talk to salespeople today most people tolerate speaking with salespeople because it's the thing that stands in between them and purchasing the product that they want to they want to purchase so what do they do they do research to try to limit talking to salespeople and as a result by the time a salesperson has a seat at the table and is off and is talking about their product and service, there's they've already been qualified or disqualified. You know, we spend a lot of time in the sales community talking about qualifying your customers. Well, here's the other thing: our customers are qualifying us, right? Whoa. Oftentimes with much more rigor than we would ever consider qualifying a customer.
0: That's a mind-bending moment. Okay, Adrian what are your favorite two to three research uh, processes tools or methodologies that you go through Where do you look first, second third?
1: I'd say the first thing is I reach out to peers um, I reach out to folks that are in my either in my industry or in my trade right so industry think you know other building automation companies, other companies that, that do and sell similar products and services. Um, But then I also, you know, rely heavily on folks who are in the same trade as I am. Are there other companies um, that have an L&D function, uh, learning and development function that utilizes these types of products and services? Are there other sales training groups um, that have um, deployed this particular set of um, uh, selling principles and what did they see was a challenge or what went well in their deployment? Um, You know, it's very common for for uh, folks in sales enablement, especially, but also in L&D to just to talk to each other and understand uh, what sort of vendors are out there and what's been the highlight and the low light of, of, of working with those particular vendors.
0: Now, is this a network of people you know, like you've run into them mm-hmm. at them trade shows, or are you doing cold outreach? How, just walk just briefly through the, the methodology. So you're, you're looking yeah. for somebody that you trust to say, hey, have you done this before? Yep.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I think most folks, by the time they've spent, you know, more than a year in a particular role in a particular trade, they, they, you know, go out of their way to try to involve themselves in either different uh, trade publications or um, different industry events. And so most of the learning community that I've met has been through attending conferences or trade shows and just getting to know these other providers and what types of companies they work for and then having sidebar conversations. And then typically what I'll do is I'll reach out via LinkedIn and said, hey, we're looking at, you know, making a decision this way or this way. Uh, We're looking at purchasing this type of product or commodity. Um, What's been your experience with vendor X, Y, and Z? And again, I'm typically going to them and saying, I'm not saying, hey, who did you use and why? I'm saying, have you used one of these two or three folks? And if so, what was your? I've already, I'm already kind of reducing and winnowing that list down to the two or three that 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 I want to work with because I'm, you know, typically want to move in that direction.
0: Are you part of any special forums on LinkedIn? Like, there's a lot of like those private groups. Do you? Is that something you get involved in? Or no,
1: no. Everything, everything that I do is really person to person. Because what I find is that in a lot of those. Um, private forums. So, number one, if they're if they're if they're private and they're they're s- started by practitioners, in other words, people that have the jobs, as opposed to vendors, which are the people that are selling stuff to the people that have the jobs, right? <laughs> if it's practitioners. Um, then there's some value in it, but usually we all have a day job and it doesn't, it, that community doesn't get tended to and cared to very often. Um, now, the ones that do get tended to and cared to are the ones that are set up by the vendors who are selling everything to the practitioners who are on the call. And so, for those reasons, what I found is that those can at- occasionally um, just become more about the vendor community than about the practitioner community.
0: Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely makes sense. Another question. One of the things that I often talk about is the difference between marketing and -hmm. marketing weapons marketing would say just about every company has a, well, say a marketing team. In your case, you've got multiple marketing, marketers and teams, even a small company, there's somebody in charge of marketing. You just have to do it. Mm -hmm. Then there's in Mark traditional marketing, right? Um, branding and website and all the very important things then there's marketing weapons you call them I call them case studies you call them use Mm -hmm. cases yeah Um, testimonials you've got process maps you've got insight that you're putting out into the marketplace talk about like if you're doing research are you looking for case studies what are you looking for
1: well yeah so obviously I'm going to look for case studies Um, and what I'm looking for when when I when I go to a vendor site to look for so obviously when a vendor writes a case study, um, I think we all know who's whose benefit the case study is going to have, right? So obviously, if we write a case study, it's going to show um, the benefit of choosing our company, right? And it's the same for any other, other company. What I'm looking for in case study is, number one, named case studies. I want to know, I'm very familiar with my competitive marketplace and who are all the companies that are like my company. And so if I see another big name in our industry that's using this product or service, that makes me a lot more interested in that product and service, especially if... I'm looking at that competitor favorably, right? There are, there are competitors that we look up to and we say, man, that company really has it together with X, Y, and Z. And there are also competitors where we look, we go, wow, if, if they're doing something, I want to do the opposite. Right. Okay. And so, <laughs> um, <laughs> and so for those reasons, I, I do, I do look at those, those weapons like white papers and case studies. Um, and then if there's any, um, any information that's kind of publicly made available to organizations like, you know, if I'm evaluating as an example, um, some sort of sales process or sales methodology um, or selling principles, I might look for, you know, uh, groups that are focused in the world of sales enablement. Um, but generally speaking, I'm, I'm looking at white papers and case studies. And um, I will say this, I don't think that cold, cold calling is dead. I think, I think the way that it, that it used to happen Um, has definitely changed but there's plenty of times when I will get I'll see somebody post something on LinkedIn and they probably have no idea that I'm looking to make a purchase of something but I'll see it it's an interesting uh, it's a thought-provoking article it's a thought-provoking headline I'll take a look at it and I'll read it if nothing else I'm walking away with a better perception of that company Um, now if I'm a if I'm a sales rep I you know I think I think the mistake a lot of sales reps make is they put an article out on LinkedIn and then they wait for a week and nobody calls them as a result of their brilliant article. And they go, Oh, this, this LinkedIn stuff, or, you know, this article writing, this, this, this just didn't work. That's not what it's about. Um, If you're expecting your post to result in people picking up the phone and calling you, um, you might be setting your expectations a little bit too high. I think about it more of um, it's it's just about making cold calls less cold. They've seen your company name. They've seen your name. They've seen people comment um, on your post about, yeah, you did a great job when you guys did X, Y, and Z for us. Um, and it's building your brand both as a company and as a, as a seller within that company. Um, so I just think I think it's different. But I do think the idea of you know, kind of knocking on a door or just reaching out unless you do it very well um, and very and spend a lot of time making things very, very specific and very, very honed in. I think it's I think it's a a lot of work for um, a smaller result than it used to be.
0: What I love about following you on LinkedIn is I may get an update on a really cool, uh, now, project that your company is doing, especially mm-hmm. around clean air and the things yeah. you're doing in the school systems, just fascinating to me. And then I might get an article on insights on marketing, insights on sales process. I and mean, you do a great job of, of really covering the whole field in terms of, of representing your organization well. Mm-hmm. posting case studies, as well as insight. So it's, yeah. it's, it's awesome. Keep it up, man. I'd love watching and following. <laughs>
1: Thanks. Well, you're, you're pretty, you're pretty fun to follow yourself. I love the, uh, the two minute tune-ups that you've been uh, doing. I wish, <laughs> I wish we could uh, push those out to every single one of our sellers because they're, they, although the marketplace is changing, there are things that are still so critical. I think one of the things that you focus on that has really stuck with me for a long time, and this isn't a, this isn't a paid endorsement, but the idea of being very intentional about how you communicate and paying a lot of attention to your words. You know, if I think about any hobby, um, so I, I I play guitar. I'm a, I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm a tempting to be a musician, right? Um, and I practice that hob- hobby probably one to you know three hours a week. And I don't play uh, for anybody, I just play for fun myself. But here's the interesting thing. My mortgage payment is not dependent on my ability to play guitar, right? My mortgage payment, if I'm a sales rep, is absolutely 100% dependent on my ability to sell and to communicate effectively. And the irony is we spend more time on our hobbies, golf, guitar, you know, insert the hobby here, than we do on our profession. And I think this is something that's really unique to sellers. I think one of the things that drives people into a sales career is typically um, most sellers, I'd say on average, have, have a higher self-opinion than, than, than most folks. And the irony is we get into this career and we're one of the few careers where we think that we can just kind of walk in and wing it, right? Carpenters don't walk in and wing it. Um, plumbers don't walk in and wing it. No other trade as a trade has this philosophy of I'm just going to you know play it by ear and see how it goes. But we do that all the time. And one of the best things I think a seller can do is pay attention to how they communicate. Little things, um, words, you know, um, using uh, very specific words and how you communicate. Um, it helps buyers understand um, that you are there to help them find the right solution. I think there's a lot of salespeople that have given the trade a bad name because they try to use a sales process to manipulate or maneuver a customer in a particular direction. And ultimately, I think, um, I think somebody said this, I said that the um, intent is more important than process. And if your intent as a seller is to help that buyer find the right solution, even if that means that, that buyer goes to a different place, I think that comes through louder than even the best sales process. We've all been in those situations where, we're sitting across the desk from a salesperson and we feel like we got to take a shower afterwards. We feel like we're being (laughs) manipulated. You know, we feel like we, we were a commission check. Right. And I think a lot of times sellers have a hard time wrapping their mind around They say, well, you know, Adrian, I, I do want the customer to find, you know, the best solution, but I also want the customer to buy my product. And I think the answer that I give to that is the only thing that's worse than not making a sale is making the wrong sale. Right. We've all had that time where we've made a sale and we've tried to pigeonhole um, a customer into a particular product and maybe it wasn't a good fit. And now that customer is stuck. They're stuck with your product. They're stuck with you. And it's it's a miserable relationship. And when you realize that, when you realize that, you know what, I'd rather have this customer choose somebody else than choose me for the wrong reasons or the wrong product, that intent will come through. And it's also coincidentally, selfishly, it's a great way to qualify your customer. You know, make sure they're a good fit before you go through all the work of creating a proposal and doing an estimate and all that other stuff. Make sure that you're winnowing that out beforehand. Um, And if the customer is going to purchase something based on criteria that you are not um, well established to meet, then move on early and do that in a way that the the customer understands you're doing it for their benefit. One of the one of the. One of the things I think distinguishes great sellers from, um, from average sellers is their ability to identify um, things early in the process and either uh, quickly um, move on and away from, from a particular uh, selling situation or move uh, further into it. I think that's really critical.
0: Yeah, it was, I think it was in the Challenger sale. They talked about the great sellers were good at disqualifying early. Mm-hmm. Sounds like that's what you're unpacking.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's that may be the, the, the one nugget of truth I <laughs> I found from from the Challenger sale. Um, I generally speaking, I find a lot of so if you if you were to sit down, Gene, and consume every single book on great selling in a business to business sales environment, you're going to see a ton of commonality, right? You're going to see the need to build value. You're going to see things like we talked about earlier, right? Which is don't talk about product too soon. Make sure you understand what the customer's um, needs and strategies are. And I think one of the things that I've, that I've realized is that um, across all the different landscape of sales processes and methodologies, there's far more in common than there is difference.
0: So true. But like I even look at like my book and, and I'll I'll tell like I give away chapter seven mm-hmm. because it's the most unique in my in my purview, right? It's just my decision. There yeah. are fundamentals that'll never change. Mindset of success, setting mm-hmm. goal, right? That's yep. That is paramount and I think always will be, right? Yep. <laughs> and then, report, then it's at least knowing the information you need to know. And like, like even you said, edge process. Yes, we've been teaching that or spin Mm -hmm. or some level of question methodology. There's a lot of good ones out there. I know spin changed my professional career in the late and you're saying with, with kind of the new now, which you know a lot we're all most of us are working from home um i just talked to a guy the other day a, a big business leader he said he doesn't ever see the field sales rep job being the same again cuz we're all discovering we can get a lot more done without yeah. getting in the car getting on an airplane to drive to that meeting get everybody in the room to make the decision they you can do it now on a whatever yeah. platform your zoom or teams or whatever
1: Heck, Gene, I'm 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 uh, I'm being interviewed for a podcast with uh, one of the top uh, sales authors in America while sitting in the passenger side of my of my pickup truck um, in my neighborhood because it's the quietest place that I could that I could get to today. <laughs> so if if that I if, if, if that, I totally if that, get that, if, that the best, if that's not the best description of the new normal, I don't know what is.
0: And you sound like you're next door. That's <laughs> that's the beauty. All right, okay. Two more things here. I could interview you all day, but I want I want to get to the meat. You and your company have always been on the forefront of learning, of teaching and learning. Like you have yeah. to, you, you have you know, tens of thousands of people that need to be trained within the global Johnson Controls yeah. community. You were the first person that I ever heard the words "learning management system," and that would have been six, maybe seven years ago. And now you were talking about something called LXP. Can you unpack that? And you said something really funny about learning management system. Mind you, there's still companies that are (laughs) getting on board with a single source area of which people can go to for training, policy, procedure, video, whatever. But walk walk us through where where your journey and where where it's going.
1: Yeah. So, you know, LMS systems started out, you know, I think about probably around two decades ago as a way for you know, large uh, companies um, to track who took what training. Um, the challenge though, is the marketplace like we've been talking about has been changing and now learners are able to go to YouTube and they're able to go to a whole bunch of other places to go out and find content. And what's happened is that these LMS systems, um, you know, in many ways, LMS has become kind of a hospice for learning. And what I mean by that is, is it Um, LMS kind of becomes a place where, where learning goes to die, right? That's where, that's where stuff goes where he's like, oh, I got to take my mandatory, you know, whatever training. But then there's this whole other world of learning that's happening in organizations that oftentimes the, the, the companies own L&D department has no idea about, you know, videos that uh, technicians have created and are are distributing to other technicians just uh, on their own private YouTube channel. Or, you know, maybe somebody in sales leadership reads a a great article on HBR and uh, they, they send that out or they see a post on LinkedIn or there's all this learning that's happening because here's the thing, an employee... A properly motivated employee who wants to succeed in their job, they will not let learning be the reason why they don't succeed. They will go out and find the information um, that they need to do their job. Now, if that information is there on the LMS and and a learner can find it easily because the L&D team has done the right way of, uh, of putting all the metadata and everything else into it, then great. But oftentimes what ends up happening is they'll go and they'll look for information on their own. So there's a growing movement in the L&D community to to shift from LMS systems and to keep those systems as kind of a system of record, but to shift the learning experience to something uh, called a uh, learning experience platform. And so instead of going to a single site that typically is, is an LMS system and then searching for a specific course, what an LXP does is an LXP functions and I can't believe I'm saying this because I've heard it so many times now and I almost roll my eyes every time I hear it, but an LXP, the simplified explanation of an LXP is an LXP is kind of a Netflix of learning, right? Um, it It curates a bunch of content that could be content that our own company has and manages in the LMS system. It could be YouTube content that somebody uh, in our learning organization has curated and gone out and grabbed it and said, hey, this is really good on this particular topic. And then it forms these things called learning paths so that you can say, "Okay, by role, um, here's a great learning path. And then what's really powerful about the platform is that people within that role, if you set it up to enable this, are then able to also add into that. So an individual seller say, might be able to say, hey, I saw this great video. Um, here's a two-minute tune-up from uh, GrowSmart or from G. McNaughton that, says, that talks about you know, forecasting fundamentals or some, um, some solid best practices on negotiations. And then that seller can kind of upvote that content because they feel like it's, um, it's meaningful and will drive performance in their particular category. So there's, there's a host of uh, learning experience platforms that are out there. Um, But I think that's the shift that a lot of companies are making, which is going from this kind of static, we create something, we post it, and then we track attendance to um, crowdsourcing some of our, our learning and saying, where are our learners from our target audience going? And then making sure that other folks who don't know about that content can, can, can get to it. Um, so I think, I think that's, that's probably um, a good primer on LXP and what I think is happening in the, in the marketplace today for, for l and
0: what, that's such an interesting concept. So they're, they're let's just say really good YouTube, like a Simon Sinek, or it's, you know, really mm-hmm. good one. And and it's, you're in the the management side. And somebody said, this ties exactly into this lesson. And other people mm-hmm. you said can upvote it. Yeah. Uh, interesting. I, I'm looking forward to just where it goes. Like you were the, you in Johnson Controls, you, or it was Tyco at that time, we would we would build the the the, the training, mm-hmm. uh, the details, the customized training. But w- you said, "Hey, nobody's going to read a ninety-page manual, Gene. <laughs> We've got to get this online." That was seven years ago.
1: Yeah, and and to and, this day, Gene, I, I would say this: I uh, there's there's a sales leader who works in one of our domains, and and uh, he and I were just talking the other day, and he said, to this day, I think that playbook. Um, is one of the best things that we've ever put in the hands of sellers. And that was taking that was you and I sitting down and looking at, a, at 90 pages worth of, you know, content gold, but it was just 90 pages worth of content gold. And unless you're a really motivated seller, you're not going to sit down and, and read and saying, okay, how do we make this work for a seller in the field? And it was building out a playbook that was just point and tap, interactive on an iPad, which is the, the instrument that our sellers were using. And it had you know, scripts and it had, uh, you know, uh, collateral, it's just everything that I needed as a sales professional. If I was gonna walk into a uh, warehouse and I wanted to know what are my key sale- selling points for a warehouse and which of my products are most aligned to it, it was having all of that information right there. I tap on warehouses, boom, I've got 10 trade associations that I could quickly research in the parking lot before I walk into the appointment, so that I could know about the customer.
0: Um, to
1: this day i oh, think that's one hey, of hey
0: adrian remember because we had the direct link to the the local crime maps from wh- yep. wherever the ipad was and they could yep. real time if they were talking to a say a small business owner that owned a you know one of those uh, uh something in a in a yeah. business park say look yep. crime has gone up over here by 3% and here's what's happening and i see all yeah. this inventory that's all coming back to me
1: yeah yeah it was one of the coolest things we've ever built
0: uh, but that we never would have got there if it wasn't for you know, good relationship and, and you always being on the front end cusp of really, which is how do we put the tools in the hands of our sellers and marketers to help them be the most effective in the moment?
1: Well, and it's, it's about, so I, 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 don't, I don't know that I deserve uh, even a tenth of the credit that you're giving me, but I think, I think the things that, that make Johns Controls a great place to work if you're a frontline contributor is the fact that we, we do try to get learning to the learner um, at the spot that they need it, and that's something that we work really, really hard to do. Um, and it takes more effort. It's a lot easier to just, you know, record a, record a subject matter expert and stick the webinar in an LMS system and then forget about it. And then when somebody says I need training, just, you know, give them a link to something. It's a lot harder to build something that they can use in the field um, where they're at. But um, that effort pays for itself. And if you if you build great content. Um, I'm, sure I'm going to self-edit that a little bit. If you find great content, um, your your learners will be um, will be rewarded. I think that one of the biggest shifts in the in the industry is we're moving the L and D function is moving away from creation and moving more towards curation. In other words, um, it's less today uh, uh, than it was in the past about making really solid e-learning modules and, and everything else. And it's more about curating and, and going out and finding a bunch of great content that's out there. It's easier to be an editor uh, than it is to be an author, right? So it's curating that content, fitting it into your organization, in, in your business, and then deploying it out.
0: That's so strong. All right, Adrian, my favorite wrap-up question. Best yeah. lessons or best soundbites, like when you're struggling your challenge right we're all human we go through the ups and downs and things are rolling and then oh my goodness right the roller coaster of, of business mm-hmm. what are some of your favorite one-liners what are the things that keep you going and or, or even a mentor taught you or a coach <laughs> or a parent um,
1: well there's a, there's a couple of things the first thing is I, I, I do really feel like intent is more powerful than process I think that's the most important thing for the sales for the sales community, you know when you're dealing with a salesperson who's got the right intent, you feel it. You feel it within the first two seconds of interacting with them. And likewise, you know when you're dealing with a salesperson who's got the wrong intent. So intent being more powerful than process, I think that's that's critical. Um, and then you know one of the things that uh, I had a I had a vice president of sales, and he was uh, he was from New Jersey. He 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 turned a vending machine company. From fifty cents to, to I think it was over fifty million dollars, and he's just he's an amazing person. And, and one of the things that, that that he always said is, you know, he said, Adrian, have you ever heard the phrase, "The customer's always right"? And I said, I said yeah. And he goes, well, that's it's not true. The customer's right when they're right, <laughs> and and it sounds it sounds like this kind of flippant way of, of discounting the customer. But it what it's actually become to me is when the customer's right, they're right. There is a there is a truth that transcends your organization and your goals and desires and, and the customer's goals. And there is, there is what's right. Right. And sometimes that's what's right means that it's customer doesn't choose us. Sometimes what's right means that the customer chooses a product or service that I'm not spiffed on or anything else, but when the customer's right, the customer's right. And those two things um, have probably shaped more of my career than um, than a lot of the stuff that I, that I've purchased, that I've consumed and anything else. I think just those two, those two things have probably shaped me more than, more than anything else.
0: Adrian, how do people listening right now reach you? What's the best way? What's best message or to follow uh, your stuff? LinkedIn?
1: Yeah. Yeah. LinkedIn. I'm um, I, I, I think I just learned how to spell Twitter. So I don't, I don't do a lot on, on Twitter and uh, but I, I am a big believer in LinkedIn. I think it's probably one of the best sales tools out there. Um, and I love, I, I, I have yet to turn down a connection request uh, from anybody. So I'm always open to connections and I'm always open to talking. Um, and uh, yeah, that's probably the best way to get a hold of me.
0: Adrian Borkamp thank you so much it's been a pleasure working with you and getting to know you and you know i have said this to you personally and i'll say it to the everybody who's listening one of the, the sharpest sales minds in terms of going from top seller building a business management leadership on the other side teaching and now on the buying side so that's why everybody should be following you on linkedin because you post <laughs> insights and articles and i'm trying to pitch people to follow you for free but if you're listening to this and you've listened this far then that means you're somebody that's you know a lot further than interested you're committed to getting great well to do that you know listen to the voices that are getting it done not the pontificators obviously adrian is not a pontificator of how things should be he's in the middle of it yep. So get out there and follow him thanks gene take care thank you very much have a great one you too